the first two chapters in the book of Matthew set a foundation for Jesus' mission and purpose here on earth. In the first chapter, Matthew puts on display the heart of God through the generations that lead up to the birth of Jesus. The thread that weaves all of these generations together is God's loving kindness. And it's expressed through His grace and mercy. All of the promises come to fruition in the birth of Jesus. And everything is working together for the redemption of God's most prized creation, which is humanity. As a recap, in chapter 1, Matthew uses the long lineage to just show God's faithfulness. It is almost like he uses the lineage to prove historically, at least to the religious, how in Jesus everything is fulfilled. He uses the names of some of the patriarchs of the faith to show them how all of their lives ultimately point to Jesus. Now in chapter 2, Matthew is still continuing to drive the message home that God loves all of his creation and will take it upon himself to reconcile his people back to him. And as we will discover, Matthew pivots to grab the attention of those who don't have any religious affiliations and kind of everyone in between. He uses, per se, like more current events to display God's grace and mercy. He's continuing to show and prove God's wide range of grace and the depth of His mercy. Ultimately, His loving kindness is seeing in Jesus the Messiah, the Savior that the world has been waiting for. Further, in this chapter, we see how God's mission for humanity is now going to be carried out through Jesus. It's almost like he hands the baton to Jesus. Um, God's work, God's labor, he hands it over to Jesus because Jesus is actually going to carry that out. So Matthew uses these first two chapters of the account of the early life of Jesus to kind of set the foundation, proving how all of God's promises, everything in the, in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus, but also how God's love is expressed through his grace and mercy. Now, in the upcoming weeks, we're going to take a look at the three kind of main characters that, in this chapter, that this chapter focuses on. The Magi, King Herod, and Jesus as a child. And how every single one of these characters displays God's grace and mercy. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for, for this time. I just pray that you would fill this room, that you would fill our minds, our hearts with your spirit, God. Pray that it be your spirit, God, that ministers to us, that reveals biblical truth into our lives, and that ultimately just kind of ushers us into your presence, God. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. Amen. A few weeks ago, Liliana and I were talking about the history of our families. It just kind of happened at random. You know, both of our families migrated here to the States to try to give us, their children, uh, a chance of a better life and a chance for just more opportunities. We shared stories that we had recall, recalled from our childhood, sh shared about individually about our parents' just kind of humble beginnings, the dirt floors that our parents lived in, the limited resources, 
the interesting family dynamics of our aunts and our uncles. But most importantly, the risk that they took to leave everything behind to come into this foreign country. Her parents had married in Mexico and they started their lives together when they decided to come into this country. My parents made that decision individually and made their way out here and actually met here in America. And then they started their lives together. But the one thing that we were both astonished by was how both sets of parents, in the midst of their poverty, in the midst of their struggles, in the midst of their challenges, how they found God. Despite the adversity, despite the language barriers, the uncertainty, the fear, and so much more, how they found God. Looking back, it was their faith in Jesus that, that set the foundation for us. Both Liliana and I in our adult lives straight away from the church, straight away from our individual relationships with Jesus. But it was because of our parents' introduction to Jesus and to God in our childhood that allowed us to find our way back when we were searching for meaning and purpose. And our conversation just kind of sparked the question of how does God reach people? So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 2. Um, so let's read and, and follow along. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, king, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star and its rising, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all, in all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled, he brought all together, all the chief priests, the scribes of the people, and asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? And they answered, in Bethlehem of Judea, because it is what's written by the prophet. And this is the prophecy. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time that the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I can go worship him. After hearing the king, they went away. They went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its, um, at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being, and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now the Magi are some of the most intriguing characters in the Bible. They have always captivated the imagination of everyone and anyone who reads about them, especially in this account. The Magi, or wise men, were from a foreign land. It is believed that they came from Persia or Babylonia. Now these Magi were astronomers. 
They studied the laws and movements of the stars. But in ancient times, these were scholarly men who were considered wise because they brought the worlds of astronomy and astrology together to teach how the movements of the stars related to human life. Similar to what we see today with the, um, what's it called? The, huh? Yes, the zodiac signs and all that stuff. But to add to their mystery, we only have one instance recorded where they actually said something. And it's when they said, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We're asking because we saw his star rising and we came to worship him. Today their mystery may intrigue us, but to the religious, to the Israelites, these men were anything but intriguing. Where we may look at their skill set and looking at the stars and deriving teachings and look at the stars to tell them their future and something as something unharmful and ordinary, the Israelites and the religious leaders are simply viewed as idol worshipers. They were not liked. Their teachings took a look at things for direction and purpose rather than God the Creator. So this was blasphemy. Their way of life went against the first commandment, which was, you shall have no other gods before me. So God's people have a long history of falling into idolatry and fighting against it. So these men who looked at the stars and treated them and taught people to worship them as gods, these men not only went against but led others to go against the ways of the one true God. So these men were not to be associated with. In our terms, these men would be considered enemies. Yet, in the undertones of Matthew's introduction of these men, there is kindness. No harsh and no prejudiced remarks. Matthew's inclusion of them demonstrates God's kindness through his grace. God delivered the Israelites not just from slavery, but from the idols and other gods that ruled their land. For example, the stars. The Magi would be the least likely of the people to be invited to the birth of Jesus. Yet, they are some of the first people recorded outside of Jesus' parents to come and see the Messiah. Here's Matthew's point. God's grace has no limits, no bounds, and no restrictions. When describing God, grace is one of the main attributes that are used to describe who he is. We say God is graceful. Like the Magi, God's grace can be just as mysterious. But grace is more than just a word to describe God. Grace is more than a mystery. Grace is far more personal. And when we live in that grace, we begin to live in the wonder of God. We move from this being this mysterious thing to now living in the wonder of God.
And look, let's, let's take a look um, at Exodus 34. This is when God reveals who he is to Moses in the book of Exodus. God uses the word gracious to describe himself. Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. Now this passage of scripture is actually one of the most popular verses in the Bible. And it's a core passage to help us not just describe, but to understand who God is. Gracious, in the Hebrew, the word is kanun. But its root word is kanan. Kanan is one of the most common words in the Hebrew. And it was also used as a noun, a verb, and an adjective. In other words, it was used as something, like something tangible. It was used as an action, or it was actually used to describe something. These are just kind of some of the instances that it was used as a verb. It was used to be gracious, to show favor. Kanan is the word. It was used 77 times in the Hebrew Bible. As an adjective, meaning gracious, to describe something, is kanun, which was used 13 times. Now, as a noun, it's grace and favor, which the word is ken, which is used 70 times. Or a request for grace or favor, which is technina, 26 times. And again, a request for grace or favor, which is takanun, is used 18 times. Now, there are different meanings for the word ken, but the most popular way in which it's used is used as a, in a relational way. Ken can mean to show favor and generosity, regardless of obligation or consideration of worth. That's what it means, relationally. To show favor and generosity regardless of obligation or consideration of worth. In other words, to show favor to someone to show acknowledgement to someone that by, by a perceived standard is not worthy of it. Ken is most often used and it appears as a common request. It says, let me find favor in your eyes, which is used 47 times in the Hebrew Bible. It's a request to God who reigns over all creation, right? It's like we're appealing to God, the only one that's of authority. It says, let me find favor in your eyes. As I was kind of just kind of praying and just really thinking about what it means to like, let me find favor in your eyes, I almost felt like it was like a deep cry of the heart. Have you ever had like a moment with God where you're just really, really, really sorry for something that you've done, maybe something that you've said, and you're like almost like on your knees, and you're like, God, like, I'm sorry. That's what this request is. It's like the equivalent of us saying, God, I'm sorry. It's like, God, let me find favor in your eyes. Because God is the only one that sets the standards of what and who is worthy and who is not. And yet God is always looking to bestow his blessing, his favor, his grace, 
his ken to his children. The magi, the wise men, were on the furthest side of the spectrum based on religious standards among those who are worthy of receiving God's grace. It doesn't get further than these magi, these idol worshipers. Yet they are the first to come and stand before Jesus and worship him. Why do you think about that for a second? The least of the least are one of the first people to come and worship Jesus the Messiah. God's infinite love for all of his creation is the measure of his reach. In other words, God's love is the motivation, is what compels him to pour out his grace. Nothing else. No amount of work, not what's in your bank account, no status, no power, nothing. It's simply God's love for you that measures, that compels him to pour out his grace on you. Because his grace knows no bounds, no limits. His grace is Catholic. The word Catholic means universal. That's what the word Catholic means. It means universal. God's love is universal. I love what this, um, this uh, monk, if you will, this giant of the faith, Bernard of Clairvaux, said this in his book on loving God. He said, I know that my God is not merely a bontuous bestower of my life, the generous provider of all my needs, the pitiful counselor of all my sorrows, the wise guide of my course but that he is far more than all of that. He saves me with an abundant deliverance. He is my eternal preserver, the portion of my inheritance and my glory. God's love for you is what consumes him and compels him to move towards you. Like the Magi, like this wise man, God is always working to redeem and reach all of his people. And his love is what drives him to do so. God's grace is more than just favor. God's grace is his love in action. Matthew uses these wise men as an example that no one, absolutely no one, is out of reach. He sees every single one of us, whether we're saved or lost. Because his greatest mission is to redeem the heart of every human that he's ever created. God's grace in our lives does more than just reach the lost. God's grace is what brings us life for those of us who have accepted Jesus into our lives. God's grace is an expression of his love for you. God's grace reaches further and deeper than anything 
this world can ever promise us. It reaches into our deepest needs, our deepest desires, our deepest longings. And it also penetrates those deepest parts of our souls. His grace touches our deepest wounds, our deepest failures, our deepest pains to redeem them, to give us life. Look at the words of the Apostle Paul. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. See, grace is God's loving kindness redeeming us from the sinfulness that plagues every single one of our human hearts. Receiving His grace is a continuous gift. It is not something that just happens once and then we're done. God's grace needs to become the source of living water that nourishes us. But this is where the dilemma lies. The standards of this world teach us and lead us to believe that if we act the right way, if we say the right things, if we believe the same things, we are good people. And the trap in that is that it's good enough. Being a good person is good enough. But the challenge with that is that we become complacent with that. We lie to ourselves about the reality and the, con the true condition of our hearts. We begin to look at God as a lifeline instead of the sustainer of our lives. He is our, um, our 911 call when we're really desperate. But the invitation to be people who are living and this continuous gift is not to become dependent on our, of ourselves and to seek control of our lives, but to truly become dependent on God and His grace. Jesus shows us that there's a different way because the abundant life that He promises is abundant because it's relied and dependent on God. Nothing else. There is a transition here. The abundant life that Jesus promises is a life that is sustained by the grace of God. There's a transition that happens here. Where we begin to look at the goodness of God outside of our circumstances. I love the words of Teresa of Avila. She says, don't just seek the consolations of God, but seek the God of consolations. In other words, let's not just seek for God to fix our circumstances, to bring us more money, to give us a better job, to find our spouse, to do these things. But to, can we get to a point where God is simply enough? That is the life of a follower of Jesus. And it will take the rest of our lives to get to that place where God is enough. 
in the, third, in the early third and fourth century, there are these men. Some were rich, some were educated, others were married. Some had positions of influence and power. But they were dissatisfied with their lives. They left it all behind because in them was this desire to know God in a more deeper and intimate way. So they left it all behind and went out to the desert, the Egyptian desert, to draw closer to God. These men are also known as the Desert Fathers. And they're patriarchs of our faith because we go back to them, to a lot of their sayings, to a lot of the orthodoxies, like, like, um, kind of like as pure as you can get to like biblical um, ways of, of, of doing church to, to, for guidance. And one of them had this to say, the closer you draw to God, the more you realize that you're a sinner. The closer you draw to God, the more you realize that you're a sinner. This saying is profound on so many levels, but not because it points out the condition of our hearts and the sinfulness that exists deep within us, but that these men discovered and encountered the need for the human heart to endure and persevere in this life needs to be dependent on God. Think about it. In their time, away from all considerable temptation, because they're literally like in these huts in the middle of the desert by themselves, they realized that their sinfulness, our sinfulness, goes way beyond our circumstances and our behaviors. Our sinfulness is deeply rooted and embedded in our hearts. But in and through Jesus, with Jesus, he shows us the way how God's grace, his favor through his generosity can redeem us. And this is something that's so needed for us today. Because the things that we struggle with, the things that we seek for fulfillment, for purpose, go way beyond behavioral flaws. They go deeper than that. The very things that create a distancing between us and God on a daily basis are the very things that we have become to idolize. And they look good on the surface. Could be our jobs. It could be what's in our bank account. It could be what we drive. It could be what we wear. There's nothing, trust me, there's nothing wrong with treating ourselves and, and buying nice things. and having, But if that's all we're living for, then it's an idol. Like the Magi, because everyone around us kind of tends to be doing the same thing, we look to signs and other things for purpose and significance other than God. Because we want a quick answer from Him. We want 
a quick solution from that. Why? Because everybody else is telling us that answers come quickly. Solutions come quicker. Unfortunately, this is the way that we naturally bend towards. It feels it's actually more natural because we're accustomed to it. Henry Nouwen has this phenomenal book on the prodigal son. And to kind of sum it all up, he says this, we are all, we all flirt between being the prodigal son who's always kind of going astray or being the elder son who stays at home is just kind of resentful because we're doing the things that God asks of us without joy or without forgiveness or without compassion. As followers of Jesus, we kind of fall in this trap. We're either the prodigal son or we're the eldest son. But our goal as followers of Jesus is to become like the father who's loving and compassionate to both. The answer is grace. The answer to our sinfulness, to our selfishness, is grace. God's loving kindness is always moving towards us to, break, uh, to free us, to redeem us, and break us from the bondages of our sins. Grace is the life source that finds us when we're lost and meets us in our deepest pain if we allow it to. Grace gives us everything because He loves us. Though we deserve nothing. Grace is an expression of God's love for every single one of us. The Apostle Paul talks to great lengths from his personal experience about what the dependence on God's grace looks like. You know, there's a story, a very popular story, that talks about how he dealt with this thorn in the flesh, as he called it. No one really knows what it was. It could have been a persistent temptation. Maybe it was a physical illness. Maybe it was an emotional wound. Regardless, Paul begs God to remove it on three separate occasions. But look at God's response. Each Time, this is what God said. My grace is all that you need because my power works best in weakness. I want to lead us through a little exercise today. Part of like St. Ignatius and his meditations, it's called like a, like a visual prayer. All of us have things we're struggling with, whether it's a hurt, it's a bad habit, an addiction. Maybe we yelled at our kids on the way here. I'm sorry, I'm just revealing my stuff. Um, or maybe there's like a conflict or whatever it is. We, we all need God in one way or another. I want us to just kind of and I'll, and I'll guide us through this. So just kind of close your eyes. And I want you to just find like your happy place, if you will. Like if it's at the beach, kind of envision yourself there. Or if it's at a park, or even if it's at your house, if it's at your bed, whatever it is, just find yourself in just that place. 
and Jesus is entering into the room or into the place where you're, where you're at. And as he's making his way, you hear his steps. And he sits right next to you. Now use this time within yourself, within your heart, to share with Jesus what's weighing you down, what's really been holding you back. Pay attention to what you feel, what you see when Jesus tells you, my grace is all that you need. My grace is all that you need. My power works best in your weakness. He gets up and goes back the way he came. You're still in that place. How have his words connected with you? I always like to close out uh, my, our, our messages and the teachings with what, you know, I'll just kind of share with you guys. For me, um, I never want anybody to walk out of here and say, man, that was a great message. Like, that's not what I live for. That's not what, like, I, I think I'm wrong. I appreciate the, the encouragement and, and, um, and the love. But that's not what like fuels my fire. For me, what, what really I find enjoyment in and just fulfillment in is out of everything that you hear from whoever's teaching up here, for you to just take an invitation from the Spirit of God. And that's how I want to close today. I have some notes here, but that's, I kind of want to just leave you in that space. Now, the invitation might not be, it might not stand out. But I think I want you to pay attention, to just take a few moments and just pay attention to perhaps the tone that Jesus might have said those words to you. 
and the way that he approached you when you were just picturing him and imagining him. Or maybe you had a hard time sitting still and, 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 and imagining that uh, Jesus coming to you. Maybe you had a hard time sharing with him your, your, your heart. What if it's there where Jesus wants to meet with you? What would it look like if tomorrow on your day off, on your Sabbath, you spent a few minutes and just allowed Jesus to meet you there? Friends, that is the greatest gift I can give you. To point out the invitations that the Spirit of God has for you. Because that's what this church is about. It's about you drawing closer to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Because you are going to have that personal encounter with Him. It won't be because of anything I've said or anything that I do. But it will be because you have personally encountered the living Christ. What is the Spirit of God inviting you to today? That's what communion is about. Jesus is at the table saying, come to me. Come to me. Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you hurting? Because I will give you rest. 